Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Deborah So podcast. My guest this week is Chloe Cole. Chloe is an 18-year-old knee transitioner. Before we get to the interview, I want to mention that this podcast is not therapy. If you are experiencing gender dysphoria or have concerns about your mental health, I would recommend speaking with a mental health professional. I'll also include the number to a distress hotline in the show notes. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I read all of your comments. You can find The End of Gender at drdebrasso.com and on Simon & Schuster's website. You can also support the podcast on Patreon at Dr. Deborah So. Well, thank you, Chloe, for coming on my podcast. I've wanted to have you on for a while, so I'm very excited to get a chance to speak with you. I appreciate how open and raw you've been in the previous interviews I've watched of you and talking about your experiences and what you've been going through. I want to come at it from a slightly different perspective. In terms of the questions I want to ask, I want this episode to be a resource for parents who may be going through something similar in terms of having a child who may be questioning their gender, but also for young women and girls who may be uncomfortable or unhappy with their experiences in society or the way that society treats women. So to start, I know you've said in the past that you begin your transition at 13 with puberty blockers and testosterone. At 15, you had a double mastectomy, and at 16, you made the decision to detransition. And that, to some extent, social media and seeing images on there and the way that society talks about women played a role in terms of your decision to want to live as male. Can you talk a little bit more about what led you to want to transition and then also what led you to decide to detransition? Yeah, I think it's important to start with how my start with my old, my early childhood. Um, I often talk about how social media played a role in my body image issues and my negative perception of being a woman, but it also did start from a young age. I mean, I did I did start using a phone at 11 and start seeing things that really I shouldn't have been exposed to, but I mean, from a from a young age, it was like I would often hear about how other girls and women would talk about experience of growing from a girl into a woman and all the hardships that would come with it and they never really talked about the good things that came with those hardships it was always like oh periods and female puberty and the possibility of getting pregnant and going through childbirth and aging and going through menopause are all so terrible and they never really talked about really just how good we have it. I mean, I think being a woman really is wonderful, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It took a while for me to really come to that. But, you know, I'd often hear from, from other girls about their experiences with getting sexually assaulted or abused or raped from a young age. And I was, I was really scared of that same thing happening to me one day. Understandably. And um, I also just wasn't very close to other other girls or women around me. I mean, I'm on the spectrum and it, it, I've always kind of had a hard time with, with socializing, especially with other girls. And I've never really, for a long time, I didn't really get along with, with girls or really fit in with them. I, I found that I fit in more with the boys and I, I was a bit of a tomboy. And as I got older, I started to wonder like, if something was was wrong with me that was that was separating me from those other girls because it wasn't it wasn't actually until I was 17 that I got a late diagnosis for autism that kind of came together for me um, 
but I just I spent a while wondering if there was something wrong with me. Can I ask you, how do you think your autism or being on the spectrum affected your interpretation of this messaging or your decision that maybe being male would be better for you? Um, I mean, part of it is that I do have some more masculine behaviors, I think, because of it. Um, but I also have a tendency to kind of hyper-focus on things and sort of obsess over some things. And that was true for, like, my my body and, like, all the all the horrible things that I would hear about being a girl. I mean, I, I did develop some body image, image issues. When I, from a young age, I was... I mean, I was I was born into a very image-oriented society, and I found this really started to affect me as I got older and I started hitting puberty. I mean, from a young age, I I was looking forward to eventually growing up and like growing growing into a curvier body and growing breasts. And once I actually hit puberty, I was very disappointed with how how I looked. I mean, I started puberty from a very young age, so it was something that. I had to deal with a lot of social pressures from a pretty young age and the difficulties of, of puberty. And I became very conscious of my body. And, you know, I thought like I would become like very, very curvy, that I would have big breasts. And when I ended up like having a more, a very thin, very, a more muscular body with, with smaller breasts and saw that my peers were starting to outgrow me. Um, in my head, at least, I was, I grew pretty frustrated and I felt, I often felt like I wasn't enough and social media did exacerbate this. I mean, a lot of what I would see of other women was like very, very like voluptuous, very, they would say like thick or bottom heavy women with like surgically enhanced too. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that then though. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to look like that, but I was really hard on myself. That's so normal. Your story to me, I don't want to speak for you. I, like I said, I can't imagine what your experience has been like, but I do think there's something that all women, it's universal, we can, we can relate to to some extent, and that feeling that pressure or feeling that it's a lot to have to live up to or to try and aspire to, especially for young girls. And I'm especially concerned because when I look at social media, I just, the, to the women who are, making their money, enhancing themselves. Even if you're not making a living doing that, I say power to you. I'm not here to judge anyone, but I just, I wish there was more information and education, especially for young girls, because I can only imagine how it influences a person's perception of what's normal or what they should look like. So I just, my heart goes out to you because I think your experience is very, very normal. and can be very much expected. And I think also what I'm seeing with these young women who are deciding that, if they don't look like that, or if they don't want to have to keep up with their appearances or have to put the time in and all of the energy and the resources to look a certain way that they must not be women. And so that that must mean that they'd be better off either being a man or non-binary or whatever. So what would have been helpful for you to hear back then to know that, you know, these are images, it's, it's no different from opening a magazine or watching TV show that it's in some ways fantasy I mean, I wish I was told pretty much exactly that and that it really was normal to feel that way. And that, I mean, 
it's pretty much a universal experience amongst girls and women, especially when you're growing up, especially in this day and age. Um, but, you know, I didn't really talk about these feelings to anybody because, well, I thought it was kind of trivial and I didn't realize how much it really affected me. And Well, you were so young. Yeah, all my older sisters had moved out and my mom was always working, so I didn't really, I mean, I wasn't really close to them in the first place, so I guess I wouldn't really have felt like I would have somebody to talk to about it. What would you want to say to other girls who might be looking at these images and be contemplating wanting to become male or feeling that because they're not necessarily typically girly, that they're not really women? What would you say to them? I mean, not only is it not real, but it just, it doesn't matter. Like, it's kind of, it's kind of a difficult lesson, especially, especially today. But I mean, you're, you are so much more than your looks. That was, that took a while for me to figure out. Um, I mean, really in, in the past few decades we become more focused on vanity than things that really matter like what we contribute to the world and to our families and communities and I think that's one of the biggest driving factors in in all this. Where do you think that's coming from? I'm really not exactly sure but media and especially social media have um I've been making I've been expediting this the discussion you were saying about periods, for the men listening, just bear with me. You know, when you first get your period as a girl, it can be a bit alarming. And then, you know, you learn through either other women in your life or just experience that you're probably going to have to become aware of this. Not only is it in the context of potential pregnancy if you are sexually active, but then also having to carry tampons and pads around with you. Pretty much always, because especially when you first get your period, it's unpredictable and it's usually irregular. And something as simple as that, I think for young girls can seem daunting. And I've, I've watched so many videos of girls who in my mind, I think are experiencing rapid onset gender dysphoria because they will say they're living as male or th- uh, non-binary or whatever, third gender. And they will say they don't like getting their period. And that's what made them decide that they are not actually a woman, that they're a man or a non-binary was there anything like that for you in, in terms of like, how, how was it hearing about periods and the messaging around that? Cause I'm trying to think of what's a more positive way to talk about this for young, for girls and young women. Yeah, that was kind of how I felt. I mean, when I first started, I had a very, I had a very regular cycle to the point that I would only have about three to four periods a year and they were unpredictable. I had no way of predicting when they would happen and there was a lot of distress because they were they were so infrequent. I never really had a chance to get used to the cramps and um, you know all the. I was I was never really prepared like I should have been. But you know I would like ask around at school, like if anybody had like any any pads or tampons, and they never would because I just had the cycle completely, unlike everybody else. And I started. I mean, this was one of many factors that made me not want to be a girl. I thought there is something wrong with me and that it would never regulate and that there, I guess there wouldn't be any point in having them in the first place if there is something wrong with me. I really wish that, well, you know, that's not the case, right? Like now, I guess, in hindsight. Yeah. For men listening to understand when you do have your cycle, I mean, you have to take care of it. If you don't have something with you, 
you have to essentially go home because you're effed at that point. So I just want to make that clear for anyone who's listening who might be thinking, well, what's the big deal if you don't have a tampon or a pad with you? That's just the reality of menstruation. And it can also be very, very painful for some women, and especially for girls when they are first menstruating. There's a lot to adjust to and to it changes your your perspective because now you have this new responsibility also that comes along with that. Can we talk about, I've been saying since day one that I feel experiences with sexual abuse, trauma, sexual assault is driving a lot of young women to make this decision to transition. And I wonder, what are your thoughts on that? When you have conversations with other young women or other detransitioners, what is your sense? Um, I mean, almost every young transgender person that I know personally, either they're not very close to their families, they're victims of either physical abuse or neglect, or they've been sexually assaulted before. Every one of them. I actually had been assaulted myself in eighth grade um, when I was very early in my medical transition. Before that point, I never really thought to bind my chest because, you know, I was only about a B cup at the time and I'd wear loose shirts. So I thought nobody would really notice. But then there was an instant in in a classroom where a boy who had been bullying me throughout the school year actually went up to me and he groped, he squeezed one of my breasts. And very shortly after was when I started binding um, to make my, make, to hide the appearance of my chest. At the time, I kind of just, I, I was shocked. Um, but at the same time, I did downplay it in my head. It was like, oh, it's just it's just boys being boys. Like, I just got to man up about it and not really, not really, not really do anything about it because boys don't cry. And I knew that even if it really did bother me, even if I did bring it up to like a like a teacher or like a staff member, I wouldn't really get any help. And they probably would just give the kid a slap on the wrist, maybe like a two day suspension at most. And he could come back and do something worse to me, so I didn't really want to. I didn't really want to poke at the flames. But you know, before that, I already had a fear of being assaulted, and afterwards, it was like, it was like tenfold. I didn't want that part of my body to be visible ever again. I'm so sorry that happened to you. What what should therapists and adults be asking? Because I'm, I'm trying to think for girls who do have these experiences, and boys too, how can we assure that those issues and experiences are being addressed appropriately? I mean, in my diagnosis for dysphoria, it wasn't really addressed at all, actually. Um, I think that should be one of the biggest parts of the diagnosis, determining whether somebody has been um, sexually assaulted or, or raped or and how that might play into the development of their dysphoria. Um, I also didn't recognize, I didn't even recognize it as assault at the time because, you know, it was in my head, it was like, well, it's not like he had raped me. It could have been so much worse, but it wasn't. And, you know, at the time, I genuinely thought of myself as a boy and it being just like boys playing. And I didn't really know just how it affected me. Which is, that's part of the reason why I don't really think this, that, that transitioning, especially medical transition, shouldn't be for kids because they don't really have the capacity to, to introspect nearly as well as adults. They, there's, there's worldly knowledge that they lack, that they just, 
they're not equipped to make that kind of decision. What age do you think it would be appropriate for someone to transition? Or do you think it, it should just not be allowed? I mean, I think leg- legally the minimum should be 18. But, I mean, the brain doesn't stop developing until you're in about your mid-20s, if not a little bit later for some people. And 25 is still pretty young. I mean, yeah, you're, you're still not very experienced in the world. And some people don't even know by then whether they want to have kids or not. Some people don't, have, don't start having kids until they're in their 30s or 40s or even in their 50s. And medical transition is a choice that affects that. And there's there's also so many other things that it that it changes in your life that even if you're given like a a fully comprehensive list of side effects of the medications, there's other aspects of life that transitioning changes that people don't really think about. Like for me, um, I mean, when I went to high school, I found out that my dating pool was very very limited, and I didn't really foresee this. I mean, I'm biologically female. I'm I was still attracted mainly to men, and um, you know, I actually looked like a guy. And there's very few men who would be attracted to masculinity. So I found that I didn't really have any dating opportunities, and I kind of missed out on that development for a little bit because, you know, I got to watch all my peers get into relationships and form those kinds of bonds and I was just completely missing out and I didn't really foresee this and even if you think what it's what you want that'll make you happier I mean the way that you think of transition will change over the course of a year or two years or five years or a decade what you think you might want in the moment really might not be what you actually need I've heard you say in the past that some of the guys who would date you when you were a trans boy, when you were going as Leo, that they, it was like a fetishy type of thing. That was the feeling you got. Yeah, I never had any relationships in high school, but I did have some some people who had crushes on me. It was it was mainly women, but I wasn't really attracted to women. But the the few the few guys who would like express their attraction to me. And especially when they knew they were they were that I that I was transgender, it did it did feel very much like a fetish, like something that they were that they were chasing. And I didn't want to be. I, I was very conscious of this, and I didn't want to be treated that way. Were these guys? Because I'm trying to understand this from a sexological perspective. So were these guys typically dating girls or typically dating boys? Um, most of them had been bisexual. Okay. But for the most part, they'd been dating girls. Yeah. So it speaks to it being some type of paraphilia, which angers me because, you know, you don't deserve to be objectified like that. Definitely. I think that's something that people need to consider and talk about, honestly, when they do make that decision about transitioning, because I think it does make the dating pool smaller. It does potentially make it more difficult, but not for everybody, but that side of the conversation is considered taboo. And I think that's also something that young people really need to think about. In addition to all the other factors, ruling out comorbidity in terms of psychological issues or other reasons for wanting to transition, but then also the reality of it, 
What's it going to look like even if you are happier post-transition? The way you'll be treated in general will change. I mean, you're changing your expression and the role that you play socially. And at first, I didn't really understand this. I didn't really know it until I was a part of it. But there's kind of like a like a social hierarchy amongst men. And there is among women as well. I mean, it's not really specific to men, but it's different in how it functions. And I did kind of, I did find it intimidating. And um, I realized that there are some things about male socialization that I wasn't necessarily, I think, equipped for. In what way? Um, it's it's quite lonely. It's not nearly as intimate as like female to female relationships. Um, you're really not as close with anybody around you, and there's not as much room to express yourself, whether it be through your appearance or um, even like emotional expression. You're kind of just expected to be um, infallible, basically, and it is a little bit painful. It's sad. In terms of the hierarchy or the hierarchical aspect of it, what type of man did you see being at the top? Um, I would say at school it would have been like the um, like the guys who were involved in like school clubs or like sports, and they had they had they had more friends, more success, more success in dating, and in most areas of their life. For men who may not be at the top, what was that like for them? Um, I mean the ones. But I knew they often were very depressed. They struggled with various mental illnesses and often um, substance abuse as well. Mm. And they're they're often very insecure about things like how much how much sex they had or how much sex they weren't having or how many relationships they had or didn't have. All very superficial stuff, really. But I mean, these are things that even affected me. I mean, I kind of got a Got to have a glimpse of it. And I think the beauty in it, as terrible as transitioning was for me, I kind of got to understand men and how they function a little bit better. And I am grateful for that. Yeah, I was going to say it's interesting to hear you talk about this because in some ways you really have been able to see both sides and you've lived both sides pretty fully and deeply. How are you doing because I know that you've been doing quite a bit of press. You face crazy people on the internet saying mean things, really awful, awful things to you. How, how have you been coping with everything? Um, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I've gotten used to all the crazy things that people are saying about me. It's just kind of par for the course. And I mean... You have a good sense of humor about it, too. <laughs> it's you kind of... When you go public with something, especially of this nature, you kind of just have to expect it and then roll with the punches but you know I've I've had some time some downtime over the holidays to just be with my family and it's pretty comfortable I'm pretty happy what advice would you give to parents who have a child that wants to transition the most important thing to do is to show them love without affirming their delusion um you have to you have to stay involved in their lives and if they're if they're on social media, if they're on internet, then monitor the usage and look at what they're looking at, and um, just be active in their lives. Like keep them keep them involved in like sports or some or a club at school to keep them focused. And because really, I think I think 
a lot of the desire for young people to transition stems from not really doing much and that kind of causes you to look inward and I think introspection can be a good thing but this often leads to this sort of isolation and lack of activity kind of leads to it does lead to rumination and so that's it's it's important to keep them keep them involved not only at school but in their communities as well and to make sure that they have that they're active socially that they have friends and that they they feel like they're included and especially that they're loved yeah and to really check in with your kids especially with everything i've been seeing with education it's wild to me and parents ask me all the time for advice and i just say the most important thing is to really know what's going on with your kids and talk to them every day and really find out like how are they feeling what are they learning what are they doing with their time because you know i'm not a parent but i imagine it, everyone is busy and, and it's easy to have a conversation with someone but not really actually have a conversation and not really know what's going on so i think that's some really good advice what would you say to other detransitioners in terms of advice that you would give them um, i think it's important to remember that especially when you're a lot earlier in the process, that it gets better. It gets so much better, and that life goes on. I mean, I remember being just a few months to a year off of hormones, and, you know, I, I went cold turkey off of it. I didn't really taper off of it. And the lack of hormones circulating around my body made me really emotionally unstable. And it was really, it was really difficult to tell when... I was like being emotional or unreasonable but I mean I often obsessed about how much I missed my breasts and my my body and how much I wished I was just allowed to grow but it, it's gotten so much better and I still have so much room to grow and that's true for everybody else. What has helped you move on? I mean it was really difficult especially in the earlier stages because I lost a lot of my support from other transgender people and from my friends at school. And, you know, I found that transition kind of strained my relationship with my family members, including my parents and my siblings. But as time went on, I started to make new friends, mostly outside of school. And they are people who I found really supported me and really wanted to listen to me and I've kind of I've found my community and I've I've um I've rebuilt my relationship with with my family and my parents and knowing that I had people who really cared for me and really support me has really been helping me um I know that's something that not everybody has and a lot of people struggle to find but it's it's really important to find that because we are we are social beings and we do even if we don't like to admit it we do we are reliant on other people and that's okay yeah and i think also to really spend in person time with people cuz it's very easy nowadays with technology to be for everything to be online everything to be even texting i think even a phone call can make such a difference to actually hear someone's voice as opposed to just be texting. I'm one of those people that's old school. I always prefer phone calls. You can one hear what's really going on with somebody. And then also it's just so much more efficient because texting to me is like you can be texting for hours and a phone call five minutes takes care of it. But anyway, that's an aside. What do you think is going to be the 
ultimate fallout of this movement of, of gender ideology? I mean, I think there's going to be a huge wave of people who regret this and either stop transitioning or want to transition, but they feel trapped. Um, and we're already seeing it. We're already starting to see it. It's just in the very, the very early stages. But I mean, pretty much every week there's a new trend, a new detransitioner coming out and talking about their experiences online. I do think at some point it's going to be so common that everyone will know someone who's detransitioned. Am I exaggerating? I mean, I think, I don't think so. I mean, at this point, I feel like almost everybody knows somebody who is transitioning. I think it's only natural. Yeah. What final thoughts do you have? Um, yeah. What, what would you want to say to my audience? Um, it's a tough one. i put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> A lesson I've learned um, in the past few years is that I think it's important not to get too focused on demographics because, you know, while I was transitioning um, and even before I was transitioning, I was struggling to find a community of people like me. And I found that in transitioning temporarily. But once the magic was gone, I, I had lost everybody especially all my other transgender friends who didn't like that. I regretted my, my transition and they took very aggressively to it. And, you know, I found community with other people who have my, who have my experience with detransition, who I'm sure a common experience with in regretting transition and stopping transition. But I don't think you should specifically speak, seek out people who have experiences just like yours. It's important to meet people who have, who come from, all different kinds of backgrounds and um, and walks of life and to learn from them. The friends who turned on you, I try to understand where these people or where activists are coming from when they decide to bully someone for their decision to detransition. Why do you think people see detransitioners as such a threat? Um, in my experience, I think it's been a mix of fear and jealousy. The fear being from you know, seeing somebody who went through the process so young, which is supposedly the ideal time to go through go through it. And for so long, I mean, I was transitioning for about three to five years, and I was I was still wrong. I, I still I still regretted my my decision. But you know, a lot of the people who who cut ties with me or have been aggressive towards me. Um, I find that a lot of them are, are much earlier in the process than I was. Like they're about a year at most on hormones, if even if they're even on hormones. And seeing somebody who was so advanced in their transition still come out the other side, I think that's kind of terrifying. It's such a such a big decision to be making, and admitting you're wrong is just really shameful. I mean, having to having to tell my parents and my siblings and the rest of my family and then my friends after three years of them knowing me as as Leo, especially when I didn't even look like a like a girl anymore. It was it was humiliating. But um, it also just completely shatters the narrative that all trans people are really trans and that we shouldn't question it and that it's very rare to regret transition. Um, 
and a lot of a lot of my my old friends who are trans were quite jealous of me because I started quite young. I was 13 when I started getting when I started taking the blockers and testosterone, and that was something that they wished they could have had for themselves. And when I stopped and started talking about my regret, a lot of them felt like I was a spoiled brat, and mm. I, I was often told like you knew exactly what you're doing to yourself. You're you were 13, not five. Um, wow. You don't. I was even told sometimes that I didn't deserve parents who would have let me gone through it. And how old were they, your friends, at the time? Um, roughly around my age, if not a little bit older. Okay. Wow. I imagine too, for someone, if they believe that being able to transition is going to alleviate their suffering and their emotional distress why it would be so upsetting for them to see that someone who has gone through it actually is not happy and is going to detransition because then for them, they probably think, well, what, what can they do? If that's not the solution for some people, that potentially means it's not the solution for them also. And if that's the case, how will they be happy? So there's a lot there. There are some therapists who genuinely believe if they don't affirm a child is at higher risk of suicide. What would you say to them in terms of how should they approach working with kids who may be struggling with their gender? Um, it needs to be, the process needs to be a lot more exploratory and less affirmative. I mean, a lot of these kids have some sort of comorbidity, like not only do they often have like a history of neglect or family abuse or, or sexual abuse or assault, I mean, a lot of them, a lot of people struggling with dysphoria are, they're autistic they're on the spectrum or they have, they have some other learning disorder or they have like depression or in my case, um, body image issues. And that needs to be considered as a factor in their dysphoria rather than just jumping right in the transition. Especially with these younger patients, I mean, kids are known for not necessarily making the best decisions. And I don't, it's, it's as if we're just completely throwing away what we know about child and teen development. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate you speaking with me. I know that my audience is going to get a lot out of this conversation. Before we say goodbye, where can everyone find you and what, what's next for you? Um, I am on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, all under the same username, C-H-O-O-O. C-O-L-E. That's three O's. It's Chuko. <laughs> I'm mostly active on Twitter, though. Okay. Is Chu a, a nickname for you? Yeah, it's a nickname. That's cute. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Chloe. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>